Good morning, everyone. Kevin here from Skywatcher, and welcome to another episode of the Skywatcher What's Up webcast. We do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, uh, right here at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. Uh, we look at everything from what's up in the nighttime sky to equipment to helpful tips and tricks. And at the end of the month, we have a special guest to talk about their specialty in the field of astronomy. Um, and it is that Friday. Um, today is Friday, January 27th, uh, 2023, uh, if you're watching this in the past. Um, or I'm sorry, the future. So hello, future everyone. Uh, but today we have a special guest on. We have Andre Bormanis joining us. He is a writer for the Orville, Star Trek, Cosmos. His list actually goes on and on and it's quite impressive. Um, and he's also an amateur astronomer. So we're gonna bring Andre in. If you have questions, just leave until the end um, and we'll throw them over and uh, we'll get started. So good morning, Andre. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning, Kevin. It's good to be with you. And if you guys are having any audio, let me know. But we checked everything, so we should be okay. So, um, so Andre, I ask everyone the same question when we start, and that's how they got into amateur astronomy. I know you're an astronomer, um, an amateur astronomer, and you've been in kind of the space world for a while, but I was curious how you got started in this crazy hobby of ours. Yeah, it, uh, you know, it started a long time ago when I was a little kid. Um, I was born in Chicago, but we moved to Phoenix when I was seven years old. And, um, you know, the big difference between Chicago and Phoenix, other than the weather, is uh, you can see the night sky. <laughs> and, yes. uh, certainly when we moved to Phoenix in the 1960s, there were, I think, 10 times fewer people here in Phoenix, literally. And... Um, you know, I started seeing the night sky for the first time, and in the summer, way back when, uh, from my parents' backyard, I could actually faintly make out the Milky Way. So I became pretty fascinated by this. I had a good friend who was, um, you know, one of my best friends growing up, and every week Gary was uh, interested in a new subject. You know, he, mm -hmm. he was one of these kids who, wow, now it's it's anthropology, then it's computers, then it's astronomy, then it's this, then it's that. So I was always kind of interested in what Gary was interested in. And so when he got interested in astronomy, we checked out a couple of books from the school library and started, you know, learning the constellations and so forth. And, you know, Gary moved on to some other interests, but I really stuck with astronomy. I, I was just hooked from a young age, wondering, you know, what are these things out in the, you know, out in the night sky? And really they're that far away and that that star is 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 just like the sun, but it's so far. You can only see it at night, you know, a little pinpoint. And, and so I started, you know, reading and getting interested. And uh, Star Trek was my favorite TV show growing up. You know, I, I remember seeing the first lunar landing, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And mm -hmm. I was young, but I was mesmerized. I remember it like it was yesterday. And by the time I was around 11 years old, I decided I wanted to get a telescope. So... We had these things called phone books back then <laughs> and there was a thing called ancient Yellow technology pages. that listed all of the businesses in your city so i got out the yellow pages and i opened it up to telescopes and the first company that was listed was called ad astra telescopes oh uh, yeah yeah and so um i called the number and thinking i knew what i was talking about i said so what kind of telescopes do you sell refractors or reflectors 
And the guy on the other end of the line said, well, I, I make a telescope that's kind of a combination of both. And I'm like, oh, wow, that sounds incredible. And he said, have your dad bring you down to the shop one night and, you know, I'll, I'll show you around. And the man's name was Max Bray. He was the, you know, founder of the company. And he made mostly these three-inch aperture Maxudov Cassegrain telescopes. So one night, my dad took me out to the shop and Max said, set up one of the little three-inch Macs on a tripod, pointed it at Saturn. I looked through the eyepiece and I saw this little white dot with this little white ring around it. And it literally took my breath away. I mean, I, I yeah. gasped. And uh, I remember Max saying, something wrong? Are you having trouble seeing? No, no, I just, I can't, that's Saturn, you know? And that, you know, that that was the thing that really put the hook in me, I guess. And that year, I think I also went on a Boy Scout camping trip to Oak Creek Canyon, which oh know, yeah, Sedona, just north of uh, by Sedona. So. Yeah, and again, you know, fifty years ago or whenever that that place was even darker than it is now. Yeah. And me and some of the scouts, you know, that night we, you know, walked fifty or sixty feet away from the campfire and looked up, and man, the Milky Way was a solid white band of light. I'd never seen mm -hmm. such a thing. And at that point, I mean, I was pretty much determined to be an astronomer and um, ended up buying a couple of telescopes, eventually got one of Max's telescopes, a uh, five-inch Maxudov Cassegrain, and uh, <laughs> studied physics and astronomy in college, did your graduate work in physics, and decided that being a professional was not as much fun as being an amateur. Plus, I had the writing bug and was doing a lot of writing, and, and uh, one thing led to another. And I got offered the science consultant job on Star Trek in the final season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, I was actually doing a master's degree in science, technology, and public policy at George Washington University when that uh, opportunity uh, came up. And uh, I was studying there under a NASA fellowship, and they needed me to start literally the week that my fellowship ended and I finished my master's degree seemed like good timing. I figured, you know, I'd, I'll give it a year or two if I can maybe sell a story or do a script for them. I'll stick with it. If not, you know, I'll, I could always go back to Washington. I was doing some interesting policy work for NASA with respect to the uh, planetary science program, unmanned, you know, type stuff. But, you know, I, I found myself, you know, pretty useful at Star Trek and learned a lot. And, um, you know, started pitching stories. Uh, I think I had to pitch 15 stories before they finally bought one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like a two-year two, two year process. And then they had me write a script one season um, because they were shorthanded on the writing staff. And they liked it well enough to have me do another one. And, uh, you know, I eventually became a writer and a producer on uh, Star Trek Enterprise. I wrote six or se seven episodes of Star Trek Voyager while I was the science consultant. And I've been writing for various TV shows ever since. And uh, as you mentioned, when uh, Cosmos was rebooted with Neil deGrasse Tyson as the host, Brandon Braga, who I'd worked with on Star Trek, was one of the executive producers and said, hey, you know, the astronomer Andrew and Carl's widow had been working with, you know, the project had been delayed several times and he was no longer available to work on it. And, um, you know, Brandon said, hey, we'd, we could really use you on this thing. And I said, God, that would be amazing. I, I love the original Cosmos, you know. I loved Carl Sagan. I'd read all of his books. I had met him, actually, a couple of times, mm -hmm. uh, along with his wife, uh, Andrewian, who was spearheading the new Cosmos. And as luck would have it, Seth MacFarlane, 
creator of Family Guy and then the Orville, was also a huge Carl Sagan fan. And he was the executive producer of Cosmos. He got that new season uh, set up at Fox. Mm -hmm. And so I got to know Seth a little bit better. And when the Orville came along, he knew he wanted somebody with a science background to be on the writing staff. He liked my work. He was familiar with me from Enterprise. And, and of course, working with Brandon, he brought Brandon Braga onto Orville and also David Goodman, who would work for us for two years on Star Trek Enterprise as a writer producer. David had been on Family Guy. Uh, he was mostly a uh, sitcom writer, but he loved Star Trek and worked with us for two years on Enterprise. So the three of us uh, were sort of the initial uh, group of writers that were hired to uh, to work on the Orville, which has now completed its third season. It's actually a pretty good show. I know when it first came, I mean, I like a lot of Seth's work, as I think many people in my generation do. Sure. Um, but it it's, you know, I think at first when it's like, oh, he's going to do something like this. You kind of go in thinking it's going to be kind of like a spoof of yeah. Star Trek, but it, it really isn't. <laughs> uh, exactly. No. It's, and you know, Fox sort of marketed it a, a, a little bit like that because that was Seth's uh, fan base, right? Mm -hmm. so they, they, they highlighted the comedic elements uh, and Seth had never intended it to be a straight comedy. It was a drama with some comedic elements, you know, we often in the writer's room do use the analogy to M.A.S.H. You know, M.A.S.H. was a sitcom, sure. But the stories were very serious in many cases. Yeah, that's what I was so going to bring up. On, right? So, well, you know, you guys hit some major topics. Yeah. So. You know, and the original Star Trek had a lot of humor in it. And, uh, you know, that was sort of the model in, in terms of the tone of the show. So we wanted to do these kind of high concept science fiction stories that were you know, had some sort of a moral element involved. And, um, you know, but with a lighter touch and with some fun characters. And yeah. But he almost I, always comes from the characters on our show. It's not. I know one of the episodes that kind of stuck out, that just stands out real quick is um, where they go to the planet where it's basically all based on like likes. Yes. Like social media. You kind of, you guys kind of approached it in a way of kind of, um, you know, black mirror, stuff like that, where yeah. it really makes you think about like, wow, mm -hmm. we have some stuff really mixed up that's acceptable in the cultures. And you kind of approach that as a reflection of, we might have to have a conversation about this on a serious note. Right. So. Yeah, you know, that was, I think, one of our more popular episodes. And I think it came off really well. Jay Lee was great in it, who plays John Lamar. And and uh, yeah, it's that, you know, sort of classic science fiction, you know, taking things to an extreme and seeing what that might look like and making that a reflection on some aspect of our society. Mm -hmm. you know, I think one of the things we talked about as we were developing that story was this whole thing of public shaming that was going on at the time. Yeah. Where people would tweet something and think it was somewhat innocent and it was taken the wrong way or, you know, and it created a huge backlash. So, um, you know, that was, uh, you know, that was our, our way of kind of, you know, taking that to an extreme and showing if we had genuine, you know, a sort of, um, everybody votes on everything just with likes and does it rather impulsively because who has time to deliberate, you know, in social media, if that's how your society is structured, you know, that's going to lead to a lot of, uh, 
a lot of problems for you know individual freedom of expression and so that's mm -hmm. the idea behind that that particular episode do you notice i mean because i mean you've done star trek then you do cosmos and then you do orville mm -hmm. obviously star trek and orville are similar mindsets of kind of where you're at with things but obviously cosmos that's extremely scientific based that's you know what it is where yeah. star trek you can kind of play a little bit um, yeah. with science fiction do you notice that when you're writing episodes for other shows it was a different approach when you're talking about cosmos oh absolutely yeah cosmos you know deals with science fact mm -hmm. and a lot of history uh, the historical development of modern science is is a big theme that runs throughout all of the cosmos series and Andrewian was you know very insistent on making sure that we got our facts right and national geographic was a partner in the show as well and they they had a fact checking apparatus you know that we had to you know subject every episode to so we depended on a lot of outside help you know i called a lot of people at a lot of places to verify you know, information about this that and the other some of it i knew uh some of it sim simply because of my education because you know it's not like we're solving advanced problems in quantum mechanics you know but we are talking about mm -hmm. quantum mechanics the uncertainty principle uh the history of astronomy you know we um you know we did a we did an episode that um was all about Gerard Kuiper and his sort of rivalry with rivalry with Harold Urey and their uh, competing ideas about the formation of our solar system, the origin of the moon, Earth Moon system, the the probability of um, you know other solar systems existing around other stars and so forth. And you know I, I was familiar with some of that history, but you know I had to I had to relearn it and Carl was a student of both of those guys and Gerard Kuiper of course was at the University of Arizona for many years where I did my undergraduate work uh, in physics and astronomy and did a year in grad grad school there so again I, I I knew the names I knew the basics you know but the history and the details you know and you know Kuiper's work on Beta Leary and you know the contact binary systems and so forth yeah that was something I I didn't know in great detail and it was a real pleasure to to to, to to you know really learn about those things again and to find out all of these new and interesting you know details yeah i think two of my favorite episodes of cosmos was uh episode four which is sky full of ghosts yes where you talk and then uh the one following that which is hiding in the light where you start talking about the spectrum and stuff like that but i like spectroscopy a lot i think it's really interesting so yeah but too. i think how you guys approach that and the you know was really you're just telling that story but you're telling it in a graphic sense now to where you can be a part of it is pretty cool so. yeah and you know one of the other fun things that i got to do on cosmos is we told the historical stories through animation and that was mm -hmm. again part of Seth's contribution of course he had this huge animation factory available to him to to develop these sequences on the original cosmos you know they did it with actors you know people in tights and you know <laughs> period period thespians so. and that's a little you know yeah it's a little it's a little dated I think so we thought hey let's do this interesting you know animation you know approach 
And when we did an episode about uh, Michael Faraday and the history of electricity, one of the things that Anne wanted to show was, you know, how Michael Faraday came up with the idea of the electric motor and also how he discovered the connection between magnetism and, and light um, through something called Faraday rotation. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but mm-hmm. basically, you know, if you have polarized beam of light traveling through a sufficiently intense magnetic field, you can, you know, change the angle of rotation of the uh, of the polarization. And we wrote this out and described the experiment that Faraday did to, uh, you know, to, to demonstrate this phenomenon. And the animators were like, what the hell are you talking about? We have no, what are we supposed to draw here? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Well, you know, we started to explain it. And then one of us, maybe me, came up with the idea that, you know, it'd be a lot easier if we just built some props and set up the experiment and had, you know, somebody walk through that experiment. And so we did. We created, you know, a mid 19th century, you know, uh, electromagnetic coil, got an coli piece and a prism and this, that and the other and a battery, you know, and and uh, none of it would act, was actually working, but it looked right. And I mm-hmm. set it up, we shot this in New Mexico, we we're on a soundstage. So I set up the coil and the prism and the this, that and the other. And, um, and then I put on a, you know, a 19th century top coat, you know, and, and uh, I played Michael Faraday. And we had, a, you know, one of our assistant directors, um, you know, shoot me, setting up the different components, looking through the eyepiece, hitting the button to put, you know, electricity through the electromagnet and blah, blah, blah. And looking through the eyepiece again and seeing, oh, the polarization has changed, you know. And then that that was something that we could then hand off to the animators. And they did a process called rotoscoping which is basically a, you know, a technique where you can take live action and turn it into animation with a you know, computer program that maps the live action you know, to the animation that you wanna do. And, uh, and that was very effective. We did a similar thing with the electric motor experiment and a couple of other things. So, so that was a lot of fun, you know? And man, I, if I'd ever heard of Faraday rotation when I was in an undergraduate, I'd probably <laughs> long forgotten it yeah but when i started to read up on it again oh yes 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 that 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 was cool you know so it was it was a nice opportunity for me to you know relearn and revisit uh and then to learn some new things especially with respect to the history of science because that's something that is unfortunately uh not not taught um in most undergraduate curricula some schools there are a handful of schools that 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 do the history and uh you know and make that make that an important part of the curriculum but most colleges don't you hear yeah, most of the time you know. it's just yeah here's the concept this is what it is that, but yeah blah 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 but sure. you don't get to how we got to that point exactly um you find that your writings and you helping with these different shows have helped like inspire new generations of people to kind of get interested in science whether it's through because that's kind of a unique stance where you're at is yeah you could be an amateur astronomer but through your workings in pop culture Mm -hmm. you're actually kind of feeding back into that world again 
Yeah, no, I definitely, uh, you know, I've heard from many people many, many times around the world that, uh, oh, wow, you know, that was that was one of my favorite episodes, you know, or that was so cool. And I remember thinking, wow, wouldn't that be a fun thing to do, you know? And and so, yeah, I think that, um, you know, certainly people that I know in the sciences, especially in astronomy and physics, probably of those who are my age and, you know, and younger, I'd say that, um, you know, half of them at least would, would, would credit Star Trek as being a key source of inspiration for them. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's the original series or Next Generation or Voyager or Deep Space Nine, you know, I mean, all of those shows, um, you know, ha had a strong audience. And I think that, you know, we were always very good at making sure that science seemed cool. Yes, there were bad people who abused science and the, and the occasional mad scientist trope would crop up. But for the most part, you know, the scientists and engineers were the good guys, right? Captain Janeway was actually a PhD astrophysicist, you know, and we occasionally mm -hmm. mentioned that in some of the shows. And in fact, one of the episodes that I worked on uh, involved uh, exploring a binary pulsar system. You know, where do you see where do you see that on TV? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It just you have it's kind of interesting how it's kind of like science has made its resurgence in a yeah. way. I mean, yeah. you have shows like Big Bang Theory and stuff right. like that who they make it funny, but then when it's it's actually like, no, what they're talking about is actually accurate. And yeah. it's a thing. They had a and... PhD physicist who consulted on that show, Lawrence Mlodino, who I've met a couple of times and uh, who'd worked and I think wrote a book with Stephen Hawking. So, you know, mm -hmm. he kept them honest and uh, found interesting ways to inject you know some real physics into those uh into those episodes I, you know i think the the show that kind of raised the bar in the modern era uh for science on television was probably er because that show ah. you know, was created by michael crichton who was a doctor he he went to harvard medical school and decided he'd had enough medicine and wanted to get into writing and he'd written a novel that became a movie and then he created this tv show some years later became this huge hit but he insisted on you know this is uh you know the kind of thing that really ought to um be done right if we're going to do it at all and you know i spent you know however many months on my rotation in the er and this is this is how it works and they 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 chatter a lot of things that the average viewer is not going to understand but you're going to understand that these people seem to know what they're talking about you know when they order yeah, and that's... the blood panel is that blah, 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 blah. And I figured, you know, I kind of took the same approach on Star Trek. It's like, you may not know exactly what these characters are saying to each other when they're talking about some problem with the warp drive or whatever, but I wanted it to be like, if you happen to be walking, you know, around on the JPL campus and you overheard a couple of engineers talking about a problem with a spacecraft thruster or something, you know, you may not know exactly what they're talking about, but you should have the impression that they know what they're talking about. Yes. And of course, even, you know, with Star Trek, yes, we invented a lot of fictional technologies that may never exist. Warp drive transporters, you know, phasers and all of these other things. But we did think through, you know, some basic ideas about how these systems operated. And we tried to be very consistent in the portrayal of those, uh, you know, of, of those technologies. Yeah, you treat them as if they are. Yeah, something. and we we had a lot of analogies, you know, 
you know, the dilithium crystal, you know, that's, well, it's a little like a carburetor in some ways. You know? mm -hmm. It helps guide how you think about, you know, what kind of problems can crop up with it and then how would you fix it, right? There actually is a question that kind of relates to what we're talking about. Um, is there a similar process to the fact checking that keeps the details of Star Trek universe consistent? Yes, because, you know, there is a whole, I don't know how many episodes of Star Trek we did from the original series through seven seasons of Next Gen, seven seasons of Voyager, seven seasons of Deep Space Nine, and then four seasons of Enterprise. I mean, until the last couple of seasons of um, Enterprise, we were doing 26 episodes of year, a year for each of those shows. So, you know, do the math. It's 500, 600 some odd episodes of television. And that, you know, that's a huge body of, of work and Mike Okuda and Rick Sternbach, who were graphic designers and artists on uh, Star Trek, kind of from the get-go of Next Generation, um, had the foresight to keep lists of terminology and, and to organize their thinking about the systems that would need to be developed to create a starship. A lot of it was done with analogies to modern naval vessels, right? Uh, Mike Okuda came up with the the great touchscreen graphics that we see, we see on Star Trek: The Next Generation and the subsequent shows. And he and Rick made sure that there was a logic to that, and that there was a you know an associated terminology. And they wrote a book, Star Trek: The Next Generation Technical Manual, that came out a couple of years before I joined the show as the science consultant. And that was my Bible. <laughs> that book was my go-to resource for making sure that, you know, when some tech problem showed up in an episode and it involved some system on the ship, you know, I went to that book. And if I didn't know it already, being a fan and having watched every episode multiple times, probably, I would make sure, oh, yeah, we call that the, you know, the phase compensator or that's a nadion particle, you know, that, you know, forms the core of our of our phaser beams on the ship, you know, and so on and so forth. Is there uh, another question real quick? My boss is also a Trekkie, so a lot of these are probably coming from him. So <laughs> That's fine. Um, are there any stories or story threads that didn't get made that you would like to have seen? Oh, sure. You know, uh, lots. Um, you know, it's it's been nearly 20 years since I last worked on Star Trek, which is kind of an amazing thing in and of itself. But I know... Something that I pitched uh, on um, Star Trek Enterprise, which was a prequel, of course, to the original series, took place like 85 years before the Kirk and Spock era. Um, you know, we wanted to revisit some of the implied history of the Star Trek universe. People have written a lot of novels and short stories and so on about the history of the Federation and, you know, possible histories. None of that stuff was what we would call canon because it didn't appear in an episode. But, And we didn't necessarily draw from a lot of that material, although we did have two writers on, on staff, our fourth season, Gar and Judy Reeves-Stevens, who were terrific writers, and they wrote some of the best Star Trek novels. And one of their books was kind of about the history of the Federation. So, you know, they fed some of their ideas into those shows in our fourth season. But one of my... Uh, one of the interesting ideas that I was pitching for a potential fifth season, which never happened, was I wanted to dig into the history of the um, Cloud City 
in the season three episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, um, where, you know, the elites all lived in this gravitationally suspended city in the clouds. And, you know, the working class was all down digging in the mines to get the materials that were needed to keep the, uh, you know, the people in the city stratos um, happy and well fed and so forth. And I thought, wow, this would be kind of cool. What did that place look like 100 years ago when it was first being built? What kind of a story mm -hmm. can we tell there, you know? And obviously we had better visual effects, you know, and on Enterprise, certainly, you know, in the, by the fourth season that, um, you know, compared to what they had available in the 1960s. So, you know, that was one of uh, many ideas that had been pitched that, you know, we were looking to explore in, in a potential season five, which unfortunately we never got. Yeah. Um, just kind of shifting away from astronomy and more to your writing side of things. Um, for someone who's maybe getting started in writing, obviously I've tried to write stuff before and I have my own ways of going about it, but how do you craft a story? Cause I know when you write something, it's kind of like you have the initial idea and then you write it out and it's kind of like you might run out of steam yeah. on that. So yeah. how do you find or what works for you to kind of, cause you end up having to write scripts and whole storylines. Sure. How do you take this basic idea and apply that to where it's a full functional encapsulated story at that yeah point. that that is the trick and um you know on when you're on the staff of a tv show you have the benefit of other minds you know you have other mm -hmm. people in the writer's room and if you pitch an idea like i pitched the stratos idea great then what happens you know we get there we see that this, this thing under construction but you know that's not a story that's just a premise you know that's a yeah story, basically and so, you know, in, in, in television, you have other people you can kick around ideas with and, and, and that kind of brainstorming is often when things pop up and you're like, oh, yeah, that'd be cool. Um, one of the best pieces of advice on that that I ever read, Stephen King wrote a book called On Writing. And he made a very good point in that book, which is he said that I know I've got a story that is going to work when I've got two stories. Mm -hmm. So he'll come up with a premise. And then he has to think of something else that would work with that. That's almost like a separate story, but then the two can sort of interact and play off each other. And that's how you kind of build a plot. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. you really have to, you know, kind of stretch your mind a little bit. And I've in any number of times, I'll, I'll come up with a premise, I'll write it down, file it away. And it's not until weeks or months later that I go back and revisit it. And then I think, Oh, I could do bring this other element in and then that gives me enough of a dynamic to create a story and you've always got to find an element of conflict you've got to have two people with different goals you know who are butting heads and so forth so you know ultimately i think that you know writing is its own sort of magic and it's in a weird way um you know i always have to start putting stuff on paper or you know, on my computer screen. I almost never write longhand anymore. Sometimes I do, but, you know, mostly it's sitting down at the computer and I, I start typing and that kind of gets the wheels turning. And then I try to bring in a character and I try to put myself in that character's shoes and think, well, what, how would they react? What would they do next? Now I got to, I, one of my favorite writers of all time is Ray Bradbury. He was probably my, my favorite writer growing up. 
And I got to meet Ray a few times and work on a couple of projects with him. He wrote a book called Zen and the Art of Writing that's also a very good, you know, advice to writers kind of a thing. And his process was, you know, he, he, he said that, you know, he didn't really know where his stories came from. Um, he would wake up in the morning, pretty much every morning, and there were these characters talking to each other in his head, and he would just write down what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a, a famous story called The Velt about a, it was like a holodeck. It was a playroom in the future for, for kids. And he woke up one morning and he had this idea of a playroom and a wife coming to her husband and saying, honey, I think there's something wrong with the playroom. And that's all he had. And he thought, well, a playroom. Where is this playroom? Yeah, it's probably in somebody's house, you know. He had a playroom for his kids, you know. And uh, is it a playroom in today's world? Yeah, it's not too interesting. What about a playroom in the past? Yeah probably didn't have a lot of playrooms in the past people were just you know struggling to make you know yeah. the next meal right ah the future what would a playroom in the future look like television it would be nothing but television screens you know and the kids whatever they imagine would show up on those television screens and he said he started writing you know just started writing that and he said oh, okay so the father's walking down the hallway to see what's wrong with the playroom so he's following the father you know Dad walked down. He opened the door. And Bradbury said, when I wrote that line, he opened the door. What does he see? He said, I had no idea until I wrote that character opening the door. And then I saw something. And he just kept going. You just add elements on elements. And he said he wrote that story in like two hours. And it was a, it's like a stream of consciousness kind of a thing. Yeah. But when you get into that flow, you know, that that's often how it works. And you get into that flow through practice, you know, there's that mm. old line, I forget who, Mal- Malcolm Gladwell or somebody talked about how, you know, 10,000 hours, you know, the Beatles didn't become the Beatles overnight. You know, they played these terrible clubs in Liverpool and Germany and whatever, mostly doing covers of other people's rock and roll songs, you know, Chuck Berry and whoever else was popular in the 50s and early 60s. And they just put in the time. And eventually they started coming up with stuff on their own because they had done it enough they had played those songs hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and they had you know they obviously were gifted they had you know an ear for music and so forth and um you know you spend enough time you know you start the wheels turning i think that you know people often ask the question well do you think i have talent well talent is really nothing more than the willingness to practice that's another great thing that bradbury said in one of his books that he started writing when he was 12 years old and he started by he loved the burns and allen show on the radio george burns and gracie allen right this old radio show comedy thing couple he'd listen to the show and then he'd write down as much of it as he could remember try to write out the script and he just kept doing that and then he started to improvise you know some of his own lines you know And and he said it took him 10 years of doing stuff like that before he finally wrote a short story that he felt, wow, this is a good story. Mm-hmm. This is my voice. This is me. This is not me copying other people like I've been doing for 10 years, you know. And it really is that, you know. It's really just a, man- a matter of practicing and keeping at it every day. And some days you make progress and some days you got nothing, you know. Yeah. It's got to be willing Person to kind in, of in television, refine that. Pressure, you know. Pressure makes diamonds, you know. 
every year we got in the executive producer's office and he had these big whiteboard calendars all across three walls. And on those calendars, you know, it showed the, the date production would start for every episode that season. And we knew, you know, if we're starting the writer's room in April or May or whenever we started that, oh, you know, on uh, September 4th, we've got to have a script delivered for episode six. Okay, well, mm -hmm. you don't want to get, if you, if you don't have that script ready on that date, you got to shut down production. And yeah. it costs 50 or $100,000 a day, which is something that the studio is very unhappy about. So yeah, can imagine. Having, a, having the pressure of a deadline, I found to be very helpful. Yeah. It was, uh, it was scary, you know probably shaved a few years off of my life at times you know when we were you know trying to come up with episode 23 you know we know it starts shooting in a week and we don't have a story you know then you really got to kick it into high gear but you know that, that's, that's part of the process and that is. world and you know my first two years on the writing staff of star trek enterprise i'd say was my real education in screenwriting you know i'd written mm -hmm. six or seven scripts for voyager and you know was pretty well versed in the process and stuff but man you know, warriors are made on the battlefield, as they say, and that, that, yes. that's, that's where you I really learned how to write for TV. Trial by fire at that yeah. point. Uh, let's see. There's a couple questions floating in here. Uh, let's see. We did that one. Uh, of all the shows you've worked on, which episode are you most proud of and why? Oh, wow. There's quite a catalog, I'm sure. So. There is a long list, and... Um, you know, Brandon Braga and I wrote a, an episode of Star Trek Voyager called Human Error that was about Seven of Nine kind of having, she started to try to imagine on a holodeck what life as a, as a, as a real human being would be like, where she would have no, none of her Borg implants. And she started to have these little malfunctions and she went to the doctor and he couldn't figure out what was going on. And she imagined a married life. She was married to Chakotay and was, you know, having, you know, a certain amount of domestic bliss and so forth. Well, what she discovered is that by even imagining that kind of a life completely cut off from the collective, it triggered a kind of a failsafe mechanism in her deepest, you know, Borg implants. And if she kept down this path, it would eventually kill her. Mm -hmm. And it was the Borgs, you know, awful underhanded tricky way of making sure that if somebody strays from the collective and is separated that they can never really be apart from the collective they can never really reclaim who they are and you know seven of nine was kind of like data a little bit of a pinocchio character you know the wooden boy who wants to be real mm -hmm. but they can never quite get there and it was a very poignant you know and and um touching story and it was you know, i think very well received and brandon and i were both very proud of that i wrote an episode of voyager called waking moments that i enjoyed very much where uh, a race of aliens believes that when they're asleep and dreaming they're in the real world and the waking world is just a shadow of that hmm. and they are very suspicious of species that think the waking world is real and we get entangled with them and they put us into a collective dream state, but the crew doesn't know that. The only one who knows it is Chakotay because he's capable of lucid dreaming. 
that phenomenon where you're having a dream and then suddenly you're aware that you're dreaming and you can take control of the dream. I used to be able to do that when, when I was in my late teens. I had a few lucid dream experiences and there's a lot of folklore and, you know, Carlos Castaneda or somebody wrote about this as being like a Native American ritual learning how to lucid dream in some, some groups of Native Americans, you know. And thought, oh, well, this could be an interesting Chicote story. Maybe his, you know, his tribe, his people have a tradition of this. And so he learned that technique and, you know, probably hadn't used it in many years. But he was the only one who could figure out what was really happening because he could realize uh, when they were in the dream and when they were in the real world, you know. So that was a very fun episode. And I, I, I was happy with that. Uh, Brandon and I wrote a couple of episodes of um, the Orville this year that we really uh, were very proud of. One called Midnight Blue. Dolly Parton had a cameo. We got to write a scene for Dolly Parton, which was amazing, you know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I didn't get to meet her because we shot this during COVID, you know, and it took us three years to get season three done. And they shot Dolly in Tennessee. She never came out to L.A. And so I never got to meet her, which was a bit of a drag. But, you know, it was great. Um, you know, um, I liked the first episode of The Orville that we wrote called Into the Fold, where Claire is taking her kids on a little vacation and John Lamar was supposed to pilot the shuttle and he got busy with some upgrade or whatever with the ship and and Isaac becomes her pilot and she's like, ah, this this knucklehead, you know. And then of course they get into trouble, they crash on a planet and there's been a biological catastrophe, biological warfare thing going on on the planet and Isaac becomes a kind of a surrogate father for the kids. And that, that, that I'm very proud of. I, I, I enjoyed that episode. I thought it worked out well. Nice. It, it's it's always fun to just watch those shows, and it just makes you think. Um, and I think it's probably a lot like music, I'm sure, where you as a writer have your own approach about, hey, this story um, means this to me. But right. then for someone else it interprets differently so yeah. you hear a song and then the guy or whoever wrote it it's well this is what that meant to me but then it's probably interesting to hear other people's interpretations of said story oh yeah no i love getting that kind of feedback because you're right it's 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 a very different experience for me writing it than it is for when i watch you know some other tv show you know it's is it I, I, weird I, to watch I, your stories play out yeah you know Occasionally, I don't really go back and revisit much, but, um, you know, when I uh, started on Star Trek, uh, seventh season of Next Generation, which was also the second season of Deep Space Nine, of course, I got all of the scripts, you know, long before they were filmed and worked on them and saw them through multiple drafts and so forth. And so I had never seen an episode of Star Trek in all of those years, 12 years that I worked on the shows that I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I knew what was going to happen in every one. So watch. I guess I've never yeah. thought about that where it's like, I can't watch this because I played it yeah. out. So. Cause it's like, I know what's going to happen. And, um, and so I was happy when, you know, finally, you know, I, I worked on a couple of the movies. I don't think I worked on uh, the final one with the next gen cast. So I got to see that and not know what was going to happen. And that was great. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the new shows, not as big a fan of the new shows for various reasons. I mean, I think they're good. They're really well made, obviously. Just, you know, uh, didn't. I, I kind of like Strange New Worlds. 
I liked what they were doing and I thought they were getting back to the spirit of the original. Uh, but I guess having worked on it for so long and having my own sort of preconceived ideas about what Star Trek, you know, should look like and how it should be and so forth, you know, I, I hate to nitpick, but, you know, that's kind of where my my head goes. It's like, yeah, I don't I, I would have designed the ship a little bit differently. I would have done this. I would have done that, you know, and, and that's just, you know, I, I enjoy Ron Moore's show for all mankind. You know, I worked with Ron on Deep Space Nine and great guy, great writer. I loved his Battlestar Galactica, you know, reinvention. Mm. That was a show I really enjoyed watching. You know, so I still like space and, you know, space drama. Everybody loves The Expanse. I just haven't had time to really catch up with it. The first couple yeah. of episodes I saw were very good. And again, Narain Shankar, who was my predecessor at the as the science consultant on Star Trek, was the showrunner on that series. Because there was a question here. Um, as a writer, what do you like to watch? Oh, uh, I like, you know, mostly like one hour dramas. I loved Better Call Saul. I love Breaking Bad. There was a miniseries uh, called The Offer about the making of the first Godfather movie. Hmm. Al Ruddy and uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Robert Evans, uh, you know, back in the early 70s, you know, trying to get that book turned into a film and how, you know, some kind of bad people opposed the idea of, you know, even making such a film and that was a lot of fun. I love the dropout, the miniseries about the woman Elizabeth Holmes who started Theranos and you know, this blood, you know, we can we can do a full blood panel based on just one drop of blood and it mm -hmm. be like a complete scam and that was fascinating. So, you know, those are the kinds of things. Um I liked Lost when it first came out. I thought it kind of, you know Yeah. We all have apart, opinions you know, on how Lost ended. You know, but it was very engaging initially, you know, great mystery and um so yeah, lots of stuff. There's way too much T V to keep up with. You know, I, I watched Yellowstone and now nineteen twenty three, but I still haven't seen oh no, eighteen eighty three, now nineteen twenty three, right? Yellowstone itself I've seen a few episodes, but you know, I'm I'm way behind. Yeah. I started watching the prequels thinking, oh, you know, I'll watch 1883, then I'll watch 1923, then I'll start watching Yellowstone. <laughs> yeah, put them all together. So. But, you know, it's, you know, who has time, right? It's, uh, there's so much content anymore. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, The last non-streaming Star Trek was 20 years ago. Do you have any other science-related projects currently or in the works? Well, I did work on The End is Nigh with Bill Nye, the science guy, which oh, uh, cool. aired yeah. on Peacock uh, this past summer. And uh, that was a lot of fun. We shot that in Montreal. I lived in Montreal for nearly four months. We had a great crew up there, beautiful city, and um, really enjoyed it. And Bill's great. I've known Bill for 20 plus years, mostly through the Planetary Society, which is mm -hmm. now the executive director of. And uh, so that was another uh, Seth MacFarlane. And Brandon, my writing partner and old friend from Star Trek, uh, created that show with Bill. And uh, they came up with a very clever structure uh, showing, you know, in the first half of the episode, you see some big global disaster unfold and somebody screws up and makes it even worse. And then Bill dies at the end of the first half of each episode <laughs> in what we call our disaster simulator. So he's not really dead. But then the mm -hmm. second half of the episode is, what could we have done better? how could we have prevented this if it's possible to prevent or how could we have at least minimized the damage? So we did an episode, I wrote an episode about 
what if the Yellowstone supervolcano were to erupt catastrophically, you know, what would be the warning signs? Is there anything we do about it? You know, what if we got hit with a coronal mass ejection that knocked out power in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, for several days? And so all these different interesting little disaster scenarios that we played out. And, um, and that, that was a lot of fun. Again, that was, a, again, a real science, so high bar in terms of, you know, we did stretch things a little bit in terms of, you know, worst case scenario. Um, you know, we had a sort of a Shoemaker-Levy 9 comet, you know, that got torn up at Jupiter, but some of the fragments got redirected toward Earth. Mm -hmm. You know, talked about the double asteroid redirect mission, which, um, you know, had not um, had not happened by the, you know, when the show aired, but it happened shortly, I think, thereafter, and was, of course, very successful. And so we talked about how we could potentially deflect comets or asteroids if we have a sufficient amount of lead time, which, um, you know, would obviously be on the order of years. So yeah, that was my latest science documentary sort of endeavor. And at the moment, we're waiting to hear if there might be a season four of the Orville, no word on that yet. And you know, I'm developing some other projects, nothing that's been greenlit yet, so. I'm sure as a writer, it's it's always, you know, playing up there, so. Exactly. Do you find much inspiration from what's coming in like the James Webb telescope and what's coming down from all the latest science stuff nowadays. So. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and just things that are, you know, conceptual ideas, you know, how we might, you know, establish a human base on Mars, how we would use the resources, you know, available to us, the whole idea of living off the land and, you know, how much we're learning about those things. It's all great fodder for, you know, science fiction stories, of course. And yeah, the web images are, I mean, I was, I was fully prepared that that thing was just not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> so far behind schedule and so far over budget. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, 15 years ago, I thought NASA should probably just pull the plug and start over, you know, yeah, Do something less ambitious, right? Maybe, uh, you know, maybe a three meter or a four meter mirror or something that doesn't have to be folded up, you know, like origami and whatever, but man, did they pull it off? And I'm so thrilled. And in fact, two astronomers I worked with at the uh, University of Arizona, George and Marsha Riki, husband and wife, infrared astronomy team, uh, developed, I think, the NIRCAM instrument for mm -hmm. that uh, telescope. And uh, I'm so thrilled for their success because they've been doing astronomy for 50 years. <laughs> yeah. What a capstone for their career, right? Exactly. To have something huge yeah. like that. Oh, yeah. Do you know, do you notice there's it's probably something that you don't see too much because you have all these big names floating around. Like obviously you've worked with Seth and yeah. he's someone I know we'd love to have on at some sure. point, though he's got a million things I'm sure he's doing, but do you find there's a lot of interest when you get up into that level for the science world? Or is that something like Seth is kind of more personally interested rather than mm -hmm. other big names that would be going on? Oh no, I, I do find a lot of people who have that interest some of them have been exposed to it through their own work. I have a close friend who is good friends with the actress Laura Dern. And, you know, she was in Jurassic Park and uh, her dad, Bruce Dern, I met at a birthday party for one of Laura's uh, kids. Um, I brought a telescope over to their house because her son, who was five or six years old at the time, was getting interested in astronomy. So I had a beautiful eight inch F-15 Mac that I took over to their house and showed him Saturn and the moon and some other stuff. And, uh, 
And Courtney Cox <laughs> looked through my telescope at Saturn. She was blown away. She was like, my God, are you really? How far is that? It's about a billion miles. Oh, my God, you know. And Bruce Dern had played, um, he was in a miniseries that I think was based on a, um, oh, who's the guy who wrote South Pacific? Uh, Michener, James Michener, had written a, a, a miniseries about the early days of the um, Apollo program. And I forget who Bruce played. It was Gene Krantz or somebody, you know, one of those figures. This show came out in the 70s or early 80s or something. And so he was all excited. He, oh, yeah, you know, man, I I can't, you know, I played this character. And he, he, you know, he was, he still remembered, you know, a lot of the details of, you know, that role and what was going on. And, of course, he was, you know, he was alive to see that happen as an adult in real time. And, you know, was a huge fan of the space program. I guess that is, it's just like, I do tons of outreach and it just, it's, you kind of find that everyone, no matter where they're, they are in their life has some inherent interest in what sits beyond our world. And I think that's, what's cool about astronomy, whether it's just some person off the street or someone who's a celebrity and is well known, even if they're not into it or not even aware of it for even if it's just five minutes right they can click into this kind of more primal mindset if you yeah will. well and it's you know these are the big questions and i think everybody has an inherent curiosity about you know what is this universe we find ourselves in and how did it get here and where's it how will it change over the you know next hundred billion trillion years and you know th- those are you know I, I think it's part of any any human being who has any curiosity at all is going to wonder about those things and i have yet to meet anybody i've shown any number of people over the years saturn through a telescope uh i have yet to meet anybody who sees that for the first time and just says meh no (laughs) yeah the reaction is are you kidding me that's that's the real thing so you know it's you it's kind of universal yeah, and I think it's just who's willing to take the torch, if you will, or that little spark of inspiration and actually has either the means or the capabilities to then fan that into yes. Star Trek or the Orville or Cosmos or something right. that would actually, of course, it's there to make money, but it also has this inspired me yes. to make this, which then that will then inspire someone else to right. do this so i hope so and you know it's it's you know seth was inspired by star trek the next generation along with the original series you know he kind of came of age during the heyday of the next generation and uh you know hooked him on space he loved cosmos too you know he loved the original cosmos with carl sagan that aired when he was a kid and he loved it and that's how the new cosmos got made he happened to meet andrewian at an event at the smithsonian found out that she was shopping around a you know season two of cosmos and um he was like oh really wow that would be amazing and she was you know having trouble finding a home for it uh pbs apparently wasn't interested or didn't have a the budget that she would need to do it the way she wanted to do it and but man, when Seth said he was interested, that he took it to Fox, and Fox was happy to do anything that Seth wanted to do. With that. Oh, I can imagine. So, Family Guy was their cash cow, right? 
And same with the Orville, you know, said, mm -hmm. decided I need to do this kind of show because there's nothing like it on television anymore. And, and there should be. I think it's cool that he was because I, I feel like some people might be hesitant to they know what their cash cow is. And it's just yeah, like, yeah. I'm just going to stick to my guns and not right. mess with anything. And I just write funny things. But I think it was kind of cool that he was willing to, I guess, in some way take this risk and step out of what he probably is comfortable in and used yes. to producing and making something that is serious and accurate. But yeah, I think it was kind cool. of cool for him to do that because I, I'm sure he got a lot of people who probably never, that's just like, Oh, Seth MacFarlane's doing this. Yeah. Whatever. I'll follow it. But then it takes this audience that probably never thought about this at all. And it was like, yeah. Whoa, this is, kind of you're exposing new people to that so oh yeah i i you know i have infinite admiration for seth on many levels because man if i were him and had his resources and had his success you know i'd be i'd be sailing my yacht in the riviera yeah <laughs> i would be flying my private plane to whatever my next adventure you know i, I decide should be Mm -hmm. uh, but he is—he's—he's he's the hardest working man in show business. It's amazing the amount of energy that he has, and you know, I always knew he was very funny and a very good comedy writer. I didn't know what a good writer of one-hour drama he was until we started doing the Orville. His pilot script was great, you know. And it's like, mm -hmm. God, what, what, what can't this guy do? You know, he stars in it. He directs half the episodes. He wrote half of the episodes of the Orville, at least. You know, we all broke stories together in the writers' room, but. You know, Seth did half of those scripts and it's insane, you know, and and he keeps working. He's doing this Ted sitcom, you know, based on the two movies that he did about the foul mouth teddy bear. You know, he's doing that. He has a singing career. I remember once we were in the we we're in the writer's room one afternoon and Seth, I, I got to leave early today. Oh, why is that, Seth? I got to leave around three thirty. Well, what's going on? Well, Barbara Streisand is doing a concert down at the Staples Center this evening, and she asked me to come up on stage and sing a couple of duets with her. You know, just a casual Friday okay, yeah. night out. So well, Babs, like... we said hi. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. And he, you know, he performs in L.A. once in a while. Obviously, you know, the COVID lockdown changed a lot of things, but, you know, finally seemed to be coming out of that and back into a more normal way of doing business. But, yeah, he's, he's amazing. And, uh, I mean, it's... You know, I love Star Trek and I love working on those shows. The Orville has been like just, you know, a blessing. It's that experience. homage. And yeah, so I guess fun. that's kind of his homage to what yeah. inspired him. And just, so. you know, I've never worked with a better group of writers. Every day coming to the writer's room was so much fun. I mean, I, it's, I hope, we, I so hope we get a fourth season because it's just, yeah. it was just, such a pleasure on so many levels and so gratifying you know and just you know we're all proud of the work i think it's a terrific show that's awesome yeah uh i have one question yes. from someone in the chat and then we'll probably wrap it up um yeah. um have you ever wrote a sci-fi novel of your own um i am in the process of i i, I wrote a uh, pilot for a tv series some years ago got a lot of interest but nobody bought it and then my manager found uh, hooked me up with a company that they were um, they mostly had done some I guess documentary and reality TV stuff, but they were also publishers. They published some magazines and books, husband and wife couple. And they read a lot of scripts that didn't get made, and they were like, 
wow, this is such a great script. But, you know, it takes more than a great script. I mean, there's all sorts of things that have to fall into place for a TV show to get made. It's a very, very, you know, long shot kind of a process. But they thought, hey, you know, we've been in the publishing business. And they asked this one writer who'd written a screenplay that they really liked, would you be interested in trying to turn this into a novel? If you do, we'll publish it. And that guy said, great. And he did it, and they published it, and it was successful. And then they started looking for other similar, you know, unmade pilots or screenplays. And so my manager sent them uh, this pilot that I've been shopping around and not having any success in selling. And they said, oh, if you'd like, you know, turn it into a novel. We'll publish it. So I started working on that, and then I got busy with Cosmos and the Orville and, you know, Bill Nye Show and all that. Life took over. So I've been very lucky that I've been busy the last seven years or so. But I do plan to go back to it. So I'll keep you posted on that if it ever happens. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. I know you've got a busy schedule and you got to head out, but I really appreciate you being able to hang out with us this morning. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much, Kevin. Really nice to meet you. Absolutely. You as well. And maybe we'll have you on again sometime. We've got some other cool stuff floating around. Um, Awesome. But, um, yeah, I will let you get to your weekend. Thank you, everyone, for watching. We will see you guys next Friday for another What's Up webcast. And clear skies, everyone. Take care. See ya. Bye. Bye.